You're listening to Free Talk Live on the Vanguard News Network. Hello, Comrade Beck. How are you? <laughs> Kyle Hitler. Kyle Hitler. And uh, I see you weren't able to get your transitions and the rest done there. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate how much you all read the magazine. I I heard uh, everything I heard in the last 15 or 20 minutes or so seemed to come right out of uh, one of our issues here. What's the name of your publication? Well, uh, of course, I'm the, the commander of the American National Socialist Workers Party. Okay. And we publish uh, National Socialist Magazine. And uh, this is our uh, monthly magazine. I, I know Alex gets it. I don't know if we send it out to you out there. Um, but uh, it is our monthly magazine with 16 pages, full color, same kind of quality you get out of, say, Time or Newsweek, but with a much different perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Alex was sitting there discussing, we did our January issue, uh, the headline was Dead Farms, where we were discussing Jewish control of agriculture and uh, how they've used this control to break down small farmers and really gain control of the nation's food supply. Mm-hmm. Our last issue uh, was on gay Jews and really on uh, the blackmail that the Mossad engages in using pedophilia and homosexuality in Washington and how this ties into the international Jewish sex trade. And, of course, our next issue is going to be on usury, where we're looking at the banking system and how the breakdown of controls. We've discussed in previous issues how the breakdown of controls on free trade uh, combines with deindustrialization, with immigration, and with the fiat currency, to as sort of an attack on white working people. And what we're discussing in our next issue is, well, they've attacked white working people. They've driven white people into poverty. And now here they are using debt to sustain this cycle of poverty by saying, well, to maintain your standard of living, since we're not going to give you productive economic activity to engage in, we're going to compel you to borrow and to mortgage out your future labor to us so we keep you in a perpetual state of slavery. Mm. Well, you know, I heard this broadcast. Uh, it was, it was, um, I believe it was uh, January fifteenth broadcast you did on usury, and this is something that is usually a real uh, snoozer of a subject. But I thought I'd listen in on, on your radio show, and I was really impressed. And you started talking um, about uh, Robert was not there on that broadcast, and you started talking about um, this sort of timeline uh, uh, bill. And uh, you started off in the early 70s, and you started talking about all these uh, changes in the laws. And then you, you mentioned, uh, then you got a subject, that I guess we're kind of jumping around a little bit. But I wanted to ask, why are there so many check cashing stores? And how, you know, these 24-hour payday loans, how did this all come about? Why, they weren't there when I was young. Well, see, these are new, and the yeah. laws have changed, and there's... You see, we see Jews, uh, well, we have the Second World War, where the Jews force us into war. Mm-hmm. Then we have this period of prosperity afterwards. And then we have the Jews engaging in social disruption, where these children raised during that war and taught they were fighting the war because Hitler was a terrible racist hater, are now in, uh, applying these principles to American society, breaking it down with civil rights, disrupting the solidarity of the working class. So in the 70s, starting with Nitzan, and then particularly moving into the 80s with Reagan and then the, the business Democrats under Clinton, we see changes in the structure of the American economy. And they're not illusory. There have been major legal changes that have brought them about. We have a, a start off with the float of the dollar, which when Nixon took the dollar off the international gold standard, meaning that internationally it was no longer convertible. 
Well, we had this period of adjustment in the economy, where while the dollar was searching for another commodity to convert into, uh, it, it lost much of its value, and eventually it settled into convertibility to oil, which became the foundation of the stability of the dollar through the last 20-some years. Now, this was known well, as Bretton Woods, I believe, right? <laughs> well, Bretton Woods was in the 40s, and that okay. was the creation of the World Bank System. And that, I'll tell you, to get into that would sort of go okay. onto a tangent, because that more impacts third world nations. Okay. And the second, since second world, since they've been brought into the international system. But when we talk about uh, the American problem, and the Ameri America sits at the top of the international economic food chain. And so our dollar is the reserve currency of the world, largely because, until very recently, all of the oil-producing nations accepted the dollar as the standard medium of exchange. So other nations could take it. They could no longer get gold after Nixon went off the gold standard, but they could go out and they could get oil for it. So they were willing very freely to take our debt. Now, the, the, the transition in commodities led to hype, well, led to first uh, a great increase in inflation and then into a great increase in interest rates. And during this time of interest rate increases, we have what's called the Marquette decision. And the bottom line is credit cards were coming out. People were getting more and more consumer debt. Real wages topped in 1974. The wages people earn even today haven't reached the levels they earned in 74. So people were needing to borrow more and more money to maintain their standard of living since their actual uh, production was, uh, their, their proceeds from production were not as great. So this credit card company in Nebraska goes into Minnesota, and it wants to charge Nebraska-level interest rates in Minnesota in a state that has a usury law. And the Supreme Court rules that the usury laws only apply to the state that a national association, a bank, is incorporated in. So if you have a state that has no usury limits, a bank could incorporate there and could then go across borders and, and undermine another state's usury law by applying the law in which they're incorporated. So in other words, if like, uh, if like <coughs> Nebraska said, uh, we're not going to allow uh, banks to charge 15% interest to Nebraskans because we know Nebraskans can't pay 15% interest, and then if they went to Kansas, Kansas would say, yeah, you, you can charge whatever you want. Well, that's exactly right. If they incorporate in Kansas, where, or they say South Dakota, which is okay. a natural state that has no cap on usury. Okay. Well, if they incorporate in South Dakota, then they can go into any other state of the Union. Like in Virginia, there's a usury law. But they don't have to obey the Virginian usury law. They can just go into Virginia and charge the interest rates in South Dakota. And this is a complete change, because we had a National Banking Act back in the 19th century that said that banks must adhere to the laws of the state they do business in. Well, in 78, the Supreme Court reinterprets that and says the state you do business in is no longer the state in which you loan money into, but the state in which you happen to have your headquarters parked in. So that means that all the states of the Union are now under the laws of the least restrictive state. So that is the start of usury. And the ones who really, they engineer this, is Citigroup, under Sanford Wheel, now under uh, Charles Prince, who was uh, a Jew, I think the name, original spelling of the name in his family was P-R-I-N-Z, but now it's been anglicized. By the time under wheel, <coughs> and they're the first ones to go and create a new separate credit card bank in Delaware. And the story of this developing usury, which then goes into bank fees and then payday loans, 
really centers around this Jew bank, Citigroup. You know, what's interesting about this bill is, is, is how one state, uh, can, can, Delaware or North Dakota, uh, this, is, this works totally backwards uh, from, from most other laws uh, about, about how the states, the co- interstate commerce laws, and that uh, this one state can effectively tell, dictate to all the other states their interest rates. Well, you see, what happened was the, the control. The, the, the thing here is that we had interest rates that were skyrocketing at the end of the Carter administration, mm-hmm. and we had this Jew Volcker into the Federal Reserve, and he says outright, "We're going to let interest rates float as high as they want to float because of all this inflation." So then they said, "Well, these usury laws are outdated. You know, just like every other law the Jew hates. It's outdated. It's old. It's back from that era when those white guys were in charge." We need new laws, new progressive laws, progressive interest rate laws that allow us to charge whatever the market will bear based on inflation. Well, you know, Volcker goes and runs inflation, up, the prime rate, up to 21%. So then they're saying, well, the prime rate's higher than the usury law. This made sense to charge high, you know, high interest rates. But then the prime rate goes down, back down to 4%, and they're still charging people 20 and 30% on their credit cards. And the only limitation is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is a part of the Department of Treasury, and particularly under Clinton, gets under the control of uh, Rubin, who is now a Citigroup Board of Directors. So Citigroup, in Clinton's era, does two things. They go from the usury statute of the late 70s. They go into banking fees, and they go into payday loans. <coughs> and this is how we get these 400% payday loans all across the country. It started with a decision where they said, well, bank fees are a type of interest. And if bank fees are a type of interest, they are also immune to state laws regulating them. And in 1996, Citigroup wins that decision out in California. Mm-hmm. And takes it up to the, they sued California, and they get up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, yes, you can charge all the bank fees you like. So if you overdraft your account $1 as of 1996, you can be forced to pay a $45 overdraft. So legally, the the courts have said this fee is not really a fee, it's interest. That's what they said. Fees are interest. They're a form of interest. And they're probably right about that. They're a form of interest that should be regulated under usury standards. Yes. But they're not because the usury standards have been overturned. Now, and the th- comptroller currency won't do it because it's reporting to the Jewish head of the Treasury Department, which is Robert Rubin. And of course, there was one other decision. Uh, it, this is this is really the this is really the capstone, wasn't it, Bill? The Marquette decision. Well, Marquette was the '78 decision. That's the one that that allowed places like South Dakota to come into existence. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, as soon as the banks got this ability to move into move their credit card operations into these states. They went to each state legislature and they said, hey, if you want to have a bank in your state, you're going to have to go and uh, repeal your usury law. Because if you don't, we'll just hop borders into a state that lets us do business in your state anyway and uh, that has no usury limitation. And Maryland's one of the states that stood up to them, and Maryland lost four national banking headquarters in the period of a year. They all jumped right across the border to Delaware. Mm -hmm. And this is how these guys operate. And it's been one after another, and we see this banking consolidation. Again, we see the Jewish board of Citigroup overturning the uh, Steedle Glass Act and, and uh, uniting investing banking with commercial banking. And insurance. Right. And insurance. So we see all these protections that were put in place after the 29 market crash being eroded. And then we see uh, the, uh, 
We see the invention of these payday loans. You see, th this happens in a larger context, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Working people have been systematically bankrupted. We have Jewish retailers like Walmart who have exported our jobs overseas, not because the Chinese are doing anything better, but because the Jew can't take a cut of the money if there's a direct relationship between manufacturer and consumer. Mm. And that's why the Jew has always sat in the export-import business. Mm -hmm. He's always dominated. Back in the 13th century, he's in Poland and Germany telling you know, the German little city-states that the Polish goods are better and the Polish that they should import it uh, from the, German, uh, the little German states and saying, well, you know, you, there, it's better over there. Well, they can't be better in both places. But if it has to move between Poland and Germany, there's a Jew there uh, exporting it and importing it and taking a percentage of all the, the, the uh, trade that's going on. So you're saying that part of the motivation, and you're arguing in your magazine, part of the motivation for this outsourcing, this offshoring of all of our uh, businesses and this manufacturing in wherever Asia is that, uh, is that so that the Jew can insert himself in the middle of this process. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's not really cheaper to, to manufacture stuff overseas. I mean, I've been to, I've been to, particularly in Latin America, countries where they've shipped factories. I've seen the factories they've shipped over there. And the folk down there are not getting paid pennies an hour. I mean, you know, they're getting four, five, six bucks an hour. But by the time they go and they, their cost of importation, they really haven't saved much money since some of these jobs are paying four, five, six bucks an hour there, pay eight mm -hmm. or ten here. I mean, these aren't, you know, high-priced union jobs. So, you know, they aren't saving that much money on labor. What they're doing is they're just, they're just moving it around so they can make money off the movement. I mean, it's, it's sick when you look at it. Mm -hmm. Their sole motivation is to make money off the useless moving of goods mm -hmm. and really to parasitically suck money out of the economy. Well, by driving down standards of living, they've driven down our wages. <coughs> As I say, wages peaked in the U.S. in '74. I mean, 30, 33 years later, and our wages are, still haven't recovered from where they were in 1974. So what, what they've done is, well, they've driven down wages, but they want us to maintain the same standard of living. So to say, they say instead of earning the money, instead of producing, instead of having factories and farms and mines and things that make things of real value, you know, instead just borrow it from us. Borrow it from us so that uh, down the road 10 years or 20 years, you're still going to be paying us uh, you know, with your labor for these uh, goods you're consuming today, and you'll have the same standard of living. But isn't that labor, when, when you're in debt and you're working to pay off debt, isn't that really slavery? Well, it's the mortgaging of labor, which is sort of a modern form of, of slavery. Uh, you know, it's not chattel slavery. They don't, may not literally own the person, but they own everything the person ever produces. And it's, it's really their intent. They've already made us poor. They've made us poor because we produce nothing. Now we're taking the things that our fathers and forefathers produced, and they're taking these things and forcing us to uh, put debt on them and mortgage them out into the future. And then, uh, really, for most people, they don't even have productive assets. It's not like you have a business and you've got an investor and you're giving them a percentage of your profit. You know, these pe the only thing most people have is their labor. So in order to pay the debts they're incurring today, <coughs> they have to labor tomorrow. And that's the Jews' intent, having taken everything worth they can steal, everything that's not nailed down. They now want us to work for them forever into the future. You know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you make somebody understand, Bill, that 
uh, you know, I've talked to people, and, and, they, and some of them have even acknowledged a Jewish role, uh, predominance in, in businesses and finance. But they, they say, well, Jeff, uh, you know, this is just, uh, why would they have a, 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 a motivation to, to, to uh, impoverish Americans? Because wouldn't that be bad for business? Well, it's not bad for business. Uh-huh. You know, they, the Jew is destruction incarnate. You can't think of Jews the way you think of human beings. You know, people, they, they always think that others are like themselves, or at least that's the natural inclination. If you're a very smart person, you tend to think that other people are very smart like you. Mm-hmm. If you're a, a very stupid person, you tend to not realize what it means to be smart. And if you're a good person, and most white people are born naturally virtuous or good of heart, they can't understand the mentality that exists only to destroy. But when we're dealing with the Jew, we are dealing with a person whose entire nature is aimed towards destruction. It's like that fella in that Grizzly Man movie. I don't know if you've seen it. The guy Mm. who goes out among the bears and tries to pretend to be a bear. Oh, is that well, Ben or something like that? Or? I forget his name. Yeah. But it, the fellow, he goes out, he tries to pretend to be a bear, and he ends up getting eaten by him. And <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I know that film now. Yeah. You understand what I'm, mm-hmm. yeah. and what I'm saying is, you know, he goes out and he does all these bear-like things, but he doesn't realize he's not a bear. And they have a fundamentally different nature. And their nature is to eat. And he, he sees them eating, you know, bear cubs and young bears and can't understand because he loves them. They're big, cuddly, furry things to him. Well, to them, he's nothing but another critter. If it gets in his way, they're going to devour him. Mm-hmm. It's two fundamentally different ways of being. And the Jew has a fundamentally different way of being. There's a great William Pierce talk on this. <coughs> about the, uh, the frog, and he jumps, or the, the scorpion, and he wants to get across the river. And the frog says, well, uh, I don't want to put you on my back. You might sting me. And the scorpion goes, well, if I sting you, we're both going to sink and drown. The frog says, well, that made sense. And he puts him on his back, and about halfway through the river, a scorpion stings him. And the frog goes, why'd you do it? We're both drowning now. And the scorpion goes, you don't understand, I'm a scorpion. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how it is. They don't understand. They're a Jew. Their nature is to destroy. They are driven to do it. And it's not even that they do it consciously, or they want to do it, or they do it because they've thought about it a lot. They do it because they can't do anything else. It's what their nature is. They're not one of our people. They are spiritually different. Yeah, uh, I just got a little message here from uh, Alex said that the the bear movie was the movie uh, Tim Treadwell. That was the yes. uh, the movie with him. You know uh, uh, what I wanted to ask also? Uh, uh, what is the nexus here that? Uh, between immigration and deindustrialization, you know, a lot of people, you know, again, they, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't understand why it seems so. It, it just seems so wrong that, in the, while we're 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 taking our factories, uh, uh, tearing them down, sending them overseas, at the same time, uh, we'd be bringing these people in to, to do this work, and and also for the people in the IT industry, uh, they don't understand. Uh, why would uh, uh, why would we be uh, sending IT jobs overseas, and at the same time, uh, why would the, why would we be bringing workers from overseas in to staff these IT jobs right in our own country? This this seems so damaging to our to our economy. 
Well, you know, there's there's the, the, the cartoon of the Mexican. He's like, uh, should I go to the U.S. and take the jobs Americans don't want or stay in Mexico and take the jobs they do? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, it's that kind of paradox. It's a double attack on white workers. You see, white working people developed a very strong labor system in the mm-hmm. early 20th century. And it's really unique to the white world, this strong uh, organized labor that pushed wages up very high for average working people. I mean, this, these weren't, you know, a few dollars an hour at McDonald's. I mean, these guys were getting 20 or 30 bucks an hour working at a factory and, and doing productive labor. And... The, the Jew didn't like that because it meant that American people were sharing in the wealth. And the Jew doesn't want to share. He wants to take everything to himself and then destroy it. And so he, he launched this two-pronged attack. <clears throat> one was to take jobs away from American workers by pushing them overseas. And the other one was to take jobs away by for those jobs they couldn't take overseas to increase domestic competition for them. And by increasing domestic competition for them, for jobs that couldn't be exported, and by taking the jobs that could be exported away, he was able to drain white America of its wealth, just like he drained uh, the British Empire of its wealth and Mm -hmm. eventually left it a hollowed-out carcass and abandoned it. It's draining the American economy of its wealth, leaving it a hollowed-out carcass and abandoning it. And if these uh, you know, half-breed chibrus they keep creating get their way, they'll do the next thing to China, and they'll do it to India. You know, and they'll, they'll just continue rampaging, and whenever an area recovers, they'll come back and bleed that area dry as well. It's just their nature. And the reason they want this immigration, <coughs> I'll be frank, I think originally they thought blacks would come and do this. And, of course, they, they moved blacks out of the south, and used it to attack northern industrial factory workers. That's and they very created, true. Well, it is. Yeah, and, they, and they, they, they brought these niggers up in the 30s and 40s and 50s and started staffing them during World War II while our boys were out fighting. And that, that's the, where they laid yeah. the Lido Foundation. And yeah. by the 70s, they created these industrial ghost towns. Of course, they started with their free trade just, after, just in the 70s and then with the Reagan administration. But they create these industrial ghost towns. They broke up the solidarity of white working people by using ethnic and racial differences to break up labor solidarity. I mean, you know, the Mexican working in the factory next to you doesn't care if the job goes to Mexico because all he has to do is go home. Okay? So he's not going to come and, and be in solidarity with a white working person who's there, who's, who, who is, you know, rooted in the land, rooted in this country, and who wants to be able to work here. All right, so using this, this transient population, I mean, they're essentially, they're, they're like a form of, you know, the ultimate scab. And then this multiculturalism mm-hmm. and diversity just sort of covers up for what they're doing in bankrupting white working people. You know, I wonder how much propaganda, anti-union propaganda that I fell for uh, back in the, in the 60s and 70s that I, that I heard growing up. And, and, you know, it's very ironic then that, and that, you know, now I think I am actually anti-union in the sense that the unions are, are so, the unions that exist today are so destructive uh, towards yep. our, our nation and towards our race. And they are, they are embracing uh, the invasion of, uh, of, of, our, of our country. And, you know, they're holding hands with these, uh, you know, these uh, people who are uh, streaming in here, lowering our, our wages. So, you know, maybe, maybe I was, uh, you know, anti-union for the wrong reasons, but now I'm anti-union for the right reasons. And I'm talking about, like, AFL-CIO and these type of things. I don't yeah. think they're doing anything for the white working man, are they? 
Well, I, I agree with you on that. I, I can remember I worked for the uh, Buchanan campaign about mm-hmm. seven years ago when he ran for president, back before I fully developed politically. And I can remember when the AFL-CIO really opened up and embraced free trade with China for the first time. Mm. I mean, free trade with China existed since Reagan started it in 1980, but it didn't become an issue until the, the mid-'90s, when really when Walmart and its Jewish CEO, David Glass, uh, really began pushing, first with Bangladesh and then with China. Now, that's very interesting, Bill. How did, I'm sorry to interrupt the flow here, how did, how did David Glass uh, get control of a company from Sam Walton, who I've always thought was a, was a, gen, was a you know, an Aryan or a white? How did well, that happen? Sam Walton hasn't had anything to do with Walmart since the 70s, and I'm going to flip through our... Uh, our November issue, because we have a whole story on David Glass here. Uh, the Walton family was pushed out in 74 when huh. Ron Meyer and Fronda Rend, uh, oh who were two of their board of directors, pushed the Waltons off the Walmart board of directors. And Sam Walton really hasn't had anything to do with Walmart till the 70s. Now, oh David Glass was appointed CEO of Walmart in 1988. And in 1992, he, he was a pioneer. So he became... He became the head of Walmart because he was the one who had the idea of taking American jobs to Bangladesh. Before China, it was Bangladesh. And then by 1994, he was negotiating with China. And he actually said that in a business class he taught, that American businessmen better start learning Mandarin Chinese. Mm. Okay? At the time, it was made in Taiwan. And they were in Taiwan. And the Taiwanese had, and he was dealing with said. Well, you know, you've got slave labor in China. So he took these Taiwanese businessmen, alleged enemies of China, and got them to set up the first, basically, slave operation in in Shenzhen, China. And he was the one who pioneered it. And then he went, uh, he he saw NAFTA, and he was tied in with these Democrats behind Clinton. Now, Clinton was not a product of the extreme left of the Democratic Party, unlike what's been said. It was more a, a business-oriented, Republican-like wing of the Democratic Party that, he, that put him into power. So in, you know, in uh, 1993, Glass goes and buys up a number of Canadian and Mexican retailers. In fact, he bought up 190 retail outlets. At the same time, he was working behind the scenes to engineer the NAFTA, or the, the uh, NAFTA agreement. Uh, so when, when, they, when NAFTA comes through, he integrates these Canadian and Mexican retailers and, and becomes you know, a, a larger Walmart, a, a huh. multinational Walmart. So, I mean, he was, he's been behind this uh, throughout his entire reign of terror at the head of Walmart. Now, he's re- left Walmart in the past few years. But he pushed these millions of manufacturing jobs overseas, and that was you know, why the Jews picked him to be Walmart CEO because have, they knew he was going that direction. Have we ever heard these accounts on uh, on Lou Dobbs? Lou Dobbs. Now he's uh, the CNN fellow. Yeah, there? I mean, what I'm saying. This I, is, I don't this watch TV at all. I can barely know, tell you who he is. No, this is this is. I don't either. I, I catch I catch video <laughs> clips of Dobbs that show up on the forum, and he's he's picking up this sort of like a national of a 
national economy kind of idea. But, you know, this is really amazing, Bill. Uh, I tell you what, I didn't know uh, about Glass and about uh, Walton. Now, Walton must have been... In a, in a typical in a typical fashion, the sort of um, uh, Aryan innovator of some kind, and well, then and then the Jews must have kind of sniffed what he was up to, and then pushed him out. Right? Is that how well, it works? Well, I think the Jews took him over as a vehicle, sort of like they've okay. taken over Kmar. If I tell you, Jeff, I, I hate to interrupt this interview. I'm going to have to take two minutes because I'm getting okay. signaled here. I've got an emergency phone call. We'll do. I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but give me uh, two minutes. Let's get back and talk a little bit about it. Sure. Let's, uh, let, I'll play a quick song, and we'll be right back. Thank you, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot of complaints about that last uh, uh, song I played here. I'm going to play it again, though. Uh, here we go. Uh, where is that one here? Here we go. Hi. Be right back. This is Janice Whiffen. A&M's first artist and co-founder has done it again. Ever the musical explorer, Herb Alpert, emerges again as an innovator. This time out he's solo, but still keeps great musical company. The identifiable Alpert trumpet sound is currently all over the dial and will undoubtedly continue to support Herb's musical statements. Herb Alpert. Yes! The rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time to get deep. The enemy telling you to hear it. They play the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show, but much the sound. I made a year ago, I guess you know, you guess I'm just a radical. Not on sabbatical, yes, to make it critical. The only part of your body should be part in two. Tear the power on the hour from the rebel in you. Radio, suckers never play me on the mix. They just okay me now, knowing it grows. When the clock in my phone is gold, thinking and taking everything that the brother owns. My calling card, recording and audit, supporter of Chesamar, loud and proud, kicking live, next pause, supreme, loop for truth, bazooka, the scheme, flavor, a rebel in his own mind, supporter of my rhyme, designed to scatter a line of suckers who play my two prime. They are my time tickets. Okay, we're back. Let me, uh, I know this is a great tune here, but we're going to have it. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 uh, actually, uh, this is, uh, kind of like a, uh, 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 well, you can, you can hear it in the archive. It's it's an odd song, but anyway, um, we were talking <laughs> about um, we were talking about uh, it's this guy. He takes one of those uh, nigger rapper groups that are real violent out there in L.A., and he uh, he takes their lyrics, chops them up, and puts them over a Herb Alpert song. And, All right, uh, <laughs> it's just. It, it sounds amusing in concept. That <laughs> anyway, we were talking about um, we were talking about a uh, uh, the, the the ousting of Walton. Who you know, it's so funny. Walton always gets kind of tarred with being this very evil man. Who 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 you know when the dis, when the discussion always. of the e- the evilness of Walmart comes up, it's always, always associated with him. Gentile front man. Yeah, always a gentile front man. The rule of the Jews doesn't matter if it's Nelson Mandela and the Jew. Uh, A and C. It doesn't matter if it's whatever. I can't even remember the Negro's name from the civil rights era. Uh, that you know was the Jew frontman, the Jew NAACP. But they put um, what was his name, Roy or, or something like that. They yes. put up whatever. Yeah. I, I have to try to recall his name. 
it's it's on the tip of my tongue. They had a black front man would come forward and speak for the NAACP, but it was all Jewish board of directors. You know, always a Gentile front man, always a Gentile to blame, and always made the Gentiles think it's white capitalists doing it when it's really Jews. I mean, there are corrupt white capitalists, and there are issues that have to be dealt with in the white community to bring white businessmen back into touch with white workers. But the problem is not white capitalists. The problem is the Jew destroying the structure of society that keeps white capitalists in check. Okay. Okay. Do you know if uh, if Walton was a was he a willing uh, was he a willing uh, uh, tool? My understanding is that this, and this is an ouster long before Walmart became what Walmart is today. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking about 1974. But, you know, my understanding is this is sort of a hostile takeover from their shareholders. Sure. Which wouldn't be surprising. You know, the same thing that's recently been done with Kmart. I mean, seeing the success of Walmart, uh, we had this Jew that took over Kmart. And a lot like... um, Wow. I don't know if you knew this. There's that fella, um, uh, Buffett. Who runs? Uh, he took over the shirt company and turned it into the big investment uh, business. Okay, Hawthorne, B- Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway. Thanks. Uh-huh. And the Jews saw really. They they say that this is what they want to do with Kmart. Uh, Kmart and uh, I believe Sears is the other retailer they integrated into this. Uh, they were going to have it and they were going to hollow it out. And they started shutting down the stores and they're going to think about using it as a holding company. But again, you have this takeover and this transformation of the business uh, from, in this case, from a, uh, a retailer to a, a holding company that they hope will uh, be able to branch out like Buffett's company does and put its tentacles into all sorts of uh, other, p- other uh, pools without you knowing, knowing that, this is, that you've got this handful of Jewish directors behind it. Well, Walmart, we had the Jews take it over, and they took it from being a little retailer, you know, a few stores doing, you know, honest family business, uh, down in Arkansas and, and where Walmart was founded, and they began turning it into this vision of a globalized co- uh, company that really was going to attack white working people by taking their jobs away. You know, they, they may cause a little reduction in prices, but what they really cause is a huge reduction in wages that in no way compensates for the benefits of this, of their retail. And when, when, when the original trade deficit plan the one under Reagan, where they were putting it all out to Japan. And remember how it used to be Japan was taking over Japan this Yeah, Japan. I remember that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that fell apart on them because Japan suddenly went stagnant. The Japanese couldn't maintain it. Well, China, right as the time as Japan's going stagnant, we have this Jew glass come forward and say, hey, let's move it all to China instead. And China, China, China. Well, then, hell, within a few years, they've opened up all the, law, all the uh, restrictions they used to have are gone. And here's all the jobs being sucked away to China. Yeah. And here's the Jews taking 10% of everything crossing the Pacific Ocean. And all we get is tuberculosis in return. <laughs> exactly. Tuberculosis, lower wages, and, uh, you know, the prices drop three cents, but everybody earns $3 an hour or less, you know? Wow. That's something. That's it, something. It's amazing. And if it, it's it's such a plan. I mean, it's, it's not like an accident. Uh, you know, and it... When you started it, I know I heard you saying we're, we're going to talk about something that's boring, and you're right. You know, economics. I, I, when I was young, in particular, I used to take the newspaper, I'd read the the, the news, and I'd throw the the business section away because it's all complicated and boring. But it's you know, it's only complicated and boring when you divide it up into little sections that are a- alienated from each other, 
and then you teach Jewish theory, which has no bearing on reality, and it's very hard to understand because it doesn't make any sense. But if you teach something legitimate, like how does trade and immigration and the fiat currency and debt, how does this all come together? And we see that it's all coming together where you have these Jew libertarians, Jew republicans, Jew democrats, I mean Jews behind every one of these movements, all working together for the same economic goal, which is to suck all the money out of the United States, put it into Jewish pockets, bankrupt the country, then flee the sinking ship and do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Squeeze the orange and get all the juice out and throw away the rind. Exactly. They're slaughtering the sheep instead of shearing it, and that's all they know how to do. Slaughter, slaughter, slaughter. Now, in this, in this, in this ongoing litany of businesses, we, we obviously know about their involvement in banks, and, and, uh, and they're now we've discussed their involvement in retail, which I had no idea the depth of this until uh, we, we spoke. Now, something you brought up, and you mentioned some companies, uh, this was the agriculture industry, and I had thought that the Jews uh, really were not interested in agriculture, but well, apparently that's not the, that's not the case, is it, Bill? Well, they're not interested in productive agriculture, but they're, mm-hmm. of course, interested in the trade in it. Now, see, Jeff, you're saying that these are surprises to you. I'll tell you this. To readers of National Socialist Magazine, mm-hmm. these are not surprises. And I, I, do wanna, I don't want to interrupt you. No, please. But I do want to let your listeners know how they can get a copy of this. Because mm-hmm. every month we have an issue. Uh, with these issues we're talking about, we have an issue of the magazine that deals with it. You need to write to us. ANSWP. P.O. Box 8601, Roanoke, Virginia, 24014. And that's ANSWP, P.O. Box 8601, Roanoke, Virginia, 24014. And we will send you sample copies of these magazines so you can see what we're talking about yourselves. Now, in case of agriculture... Wait, Bill, do you, do, you have a, do you have a website? <coughs> do I have a website? Mm-hmm. Yes. We have <laughs> websites... <laughs> you may have heard of it. Okay. <laughs> it's called overthrow.com. Overthrow, okay. And that's our news website. We also have answp.com, where you can get archives of our radio shows, including the one I know you mentioned on Usury. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also get, uh, you can see some of the layouts of the magazine. In fact, it's, it's real easy. answp.com slash radio for the radio shows, mm-hmm. slash magazine. You can see the magazine covers and, and actually see stands of some of the pages. So uh, we do have a lot of Internet presence, and, and we invite people to come check it out there. And we will send free samples out, folks. Check it out. It's worth looking at. And just as a show note, uh, our, many of our listeners enjoyed uh, Mr. Vavelsberg's, Herr Vavelsberg's um, uh, appearance last week. And uh, he also appears on your broadcast. Jarl, yes. yes. My, Jarl is a very good friend of mine. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I didn't go very much into my own background, but I'm mm-hmm. sure your listeners know. I, I used to be the spokesman for the National Socialist Movement mm-hmm. before Satan's Gate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jarl used to be the uh, New Jersey U- state leader for the National Socialist Movement. Mm. And uh, before I was involved, and he would always laugh at me, uh, he, he said, uh, you know, Bill, you're usually very straightforward and honest. He goes, but the biggest lie you've ever told, because people always smear me like that. Mm-hmm. He goes, the biggest lie you ever told was saying Jeff Scoop was competent. He said, I knew that one was <laughs> fake right from the beginning. <laughs> so, you know, I, I told him you have to forgive me. Sometimes, you know, in my profession, we're required to uh, bend the truth mm-hmm. uh, about those we're working with. But, uh, 
I tell you, Bill, I talked about this when you were on. Uh, uh, let's go over to agriculture for a second. But when you were on uh, a show you used to do called Truth Is No Defense, and that's been a very heavily downloaded broadcast you were on, by the way. And oh, right. uh, and uh, I just I just thought it was just terrific what you guys did up there in Lansing. And, in Lansing, uh, yeah, that, that that was really great. And you know, I really thought that that the, that, uh, the movement was uh, the National Socialist movement really had momentum behind it. And uh, you know, I, I don't well, I don't it was uh, it was. Uh, yeah, I th- it I did. It, yeah. The trouble is, and this has always been a problem, uh, an organization is only a, a leader can kind of put. There are limitations built into everything, and it's usually mm-hmm. in organizations built into built in by the ability of the leader to absorb a certain size of organization. And when you when the the organization exceeds the leader's ability, either the leader gets replaced, or or the organization falls apart. And the real sign of a true leader is the ability to bring other leaders underneath him. So when the organization reaches a size and it has a momentum that overwhelms the one leader, he can go and put two or three underneath him, and those leaders can each run a piece of it. Scoop's trouble was always he couldn't let anybody else run a piece of it. Once it got, or rather, he couldn't let anybody run a piece of it big enough to threaten, to make him feel threatened by his own incompetence mm-hmm. and there were a lot of leaders in the national socialist movement who really were more capable than Jeff but were all willing to accept his leadership uh, it, until it just got to a point where the deceit and the lies and all this other stuff just gave him such an inferiority complex he really just lashed out and purged everybody two or three times <laughs> it mm. caused the whole thing to go to hell but we, we've, we've built We've tried to rebuild this with the the American National Socialist Workers Party. We've put people in charge, and I think uh, I'm I'm in charge. But I'm, ta- I'm talking about the the leaders we're developing who are at the state level right now. Mm-hmm. I think we're developing leaders that are able to absorb other leaders and build the kind of organization that the NSM should have been. So wow. that's really what we've been trying to do with it. I, I am a firm supporter of the uh, national socialist concept, and that uh, that it especially adheres to um, organizational and movement principles. And uh, and I have no one else other than uh, Kevin McDonald's second book, uh, uh, and uh, that's uh, I believe a people that shall dwell alone. And yep. he talks about national socialism as a group evolution as a group evolutionary strategy, and uh, and and how the uh, the Germans use this to protect themselves and to organize themselves against Jewish power. And I'm a very firm believer in this sort of organizational principle uh, the Nazis pioneered. Of course, uh, you know, as been commonly said by others, uh, you know, we can't just we can't just do what they did in 1933 and the 1920s. It's different now. Uh, well, as you, you know, know uh, but uh, let me let me say this. Okay, there, there are only so many things that have been done in the world. I mean, there was a, a revolution the Jews threw in Russia, mm-hmm. and there are people who say, "Well, you can't have that again." Well, then they do it, and they did the same thing in China, and they did the same thing in a host of third world nations. And they did it here too. And, well, they did it a little differently here. Here they, they did, did it through infiltration. There they did it through arms. Mm-hmm. Now the Germans were simply elected into power. And there have been all sorts of changes that have occurred through election into power. So building a political movement aimed at being elected into power, you know, it, it's not that you can't do it in the United States. You can do it. But, you know, there were, there were certain background happening and there were certain things going on that are different from what U.S. groups have done. The Germans, first of all, were not 
even though they were vilified the same way National Socialists are vilified here in the United States, they were not in actuality an anti-social or fringe movement. And here in the U.S., the Jews, through their propaganda, drive these anti-social and fringe elements into our movement. So instead of having me come forward and talk about, let's talk about globalization and free trade and industrialization, deindustrialization, agricultural trade, instead of talking about that, they push in these halfwits who talk about whatever the Jew says our talking point is. You know, so instead of talking about immigration and its impact on white workers, we get these idiots out there who just scream uh, obscenities about uh, about uh, the medicament. And I'm happy to you know cut cut jokes and you know and, and engage in some of that abuse when it's deserved as well. But mm -hmm. if we want to win white people over, we can't just be about oh we hate well, some Jewish caricature of a hate movement. We have to have a serious ideology, and that is what's been lacking that has caused. You know, it caused so many movements in this country to hit a certain point and just sort of beat their head against the wall. I, I am in complete agreement on that. <laughs> and it, it's got to, uh, you know, one of the things that I would have liked to have heard more talk about from the NSM is the idea of welfare for whites. Now, what I mean by welfare, I don't mean it in, in the negatory sense, but uh, uh, developing self-help and mutual aid, uh, 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 you know, coordinated coordinating through the, the uh, NSM movement at that time. And, uh, well, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'll tell you this. There is in our, this issue that we have with headlined gay Jews, we do more than just these more sensational issues. There's a great two-page spread here by Chris Stevens. He's a fellow, uh, runs a website called Corrupt.us. When we hear that, we think about these niggers that get put up on welfare, that that's providing a livelihood. But National Socialism realized that's not providing a livelihood, having some person rotting away on a welfare dollar. The, 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 providing a livelihood, they meant providing a, a, an environment where the economy could flourish, and not by having this exploitative free trade. You know, at the time, it was the World War I victors were, were raping Germany, and they were the same thing they did to gain control of the agriculture in the U.S. They were buying up the farms gained control of the industry in the U.S. at the same time, same way they bought up the factories, and they saw the German people as a means to earn a return on their investment. And, and that was all. And it was, you know, enslave them, drive them into poverty, you know, make them uh, immoral and, to, to, you know, distract them with these, you know, perversions. You know, that's how they saw, you know, keep these people uh, poor, stupid, and doing what they need to do to make us money so we can steal their wealth. And that's where National Socialism emerged. Mm -hmm. Well, the economic changes that have happened in the U.S. in the past 30 years, changes that we're just starting to feel the effects of. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, like the Marquette decision you mentioned earlier. <coughs> well, the Marquette decision and then the buildup of that combined with the free trade, you know, these things start in the 70s, but they explode in the late 90s. You know, I mean, just like the farm issue exploded in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, these things come together and they explode in the late 90s. And right now, we are just starting to reach the limit of our ability to borrow. And when we as a nation collectively hit that wall of our bad credit, and when they won't loan us any more money to sustain our standard of living, we are going to go downhill. And this is, I mean, it's, it's something that can't be avoided, but it's something that takes a long time to happen. I mean, we went from being very wealthy to giving away all of our productive assets to borrowing against our non-productive as fixed assets like real estate and so forth, 
borrowing ourselves into this debt that we can't repay. And now they're trying to reform the bankruptcy laws and make it you know, perpetual wage slavery. I mean, look at, at America 10 years from now, and you're talking about a bankrupt nation. The war in Iraq is bankrupting us. I mean, Bush has taken out, I think he's increased the debt by 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, that 50% increase in debt is eventually going to trickle down into inflation. And we're already seeing prices going up across the board. <coughs> now, I know what the price of milk is. We're paying $4 a gallon out here. Gas, you know, on and off hits up to 3 bucks. You know, I, yeah. Bill, I, I just, uh, you know, in, in the household I manage here, uh, it's just shocking. Uh, I mean, I've been buying groceries with my family for, for years now. And uh, uh, like uh, berries, mixed berries, we like to eat mixed berries. Uh, a couple of years ago, we started paying six ninety six for a bag of this. I forgot how many pounds it is, and right now it's nine nine uh, eighty seven or something like this. And uh, same thing with salmon. We like to we like to have a, a salmon steak every once in a while. Frozen salmon steaks from Alaska. These these in, in the last month have gone up uh, a dollar and a half. And these are these are some of the more luxurious things, I admit. But everything's gone up. Well, staple goods. I, I'm yeah. in real estate, and I'm in real estate and uh, redevelopment, really, of urban areas. Mm-hmm. And the price of lumber is up 20%. Paint is up 10%. I mean, I, you know, we buy this stuff, you know, by the ton sometimes. Mm-hmm. Concrete is up. I mean, every good, the price is going up, and it's because we're expanding the currency. Now, China has built up something like, uh, I think, a trillion dollars in reserves at this point in time. I, I have to check the exact figure. But China has built up this huge reserves of U.S. dollars. I mean, to the point where the IMF is issuing warnings about the you know, stability of U.S. currency. In the last two months, we've seen the oil-producing oil, uh, nations say, we want to go over to the euro. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that the, the commodity basis of the U.S. dollar uh, disintegrate. All China has to do is dump a trillion dollars on the, on the world market. And that's a, a ninth, one ninth of all the dollars outstanding. I mean, that's 11% inflation. I mean, they could probably push it. I mean, a matter of months for that to trickle through to our uh, economy. And if they did it, our other creditor nations, the, the the Saudis in particular, and some of the oil producing nations follow suit. I mean, we could see the U.S. dollar collapse in a, it, the same way that Argentina's dollar uh, or peso, uh, I believe, uh, collapsed. You know, I mean. You know, one thing, Bill, I just got through reading an article by Paul Craig Roberts, and he said this is what other nations that oppose the U.S., uh, Russia, China, and some other nations, he said that they should start dumping our dollar because that's the only way that they're going to stop U.S. aggression. Well, you see, they they don't want... The, well, St. Pauli girl, as Alex calls him, yeah. uh, he's a bit of a prick, so I, uh, mm-hmm. I've had some encounters with him. Paul, uh, Paul but, uh, Craig Roberts? Yeah, he's a bit of a prick. You've met him. Huh? I've had no. encounters with him. I'll oh, put it okay. <laughs> He's okay. threatened to sue me in the past. Oh, my. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> and I think he threatened to sue Alex at one point, which is where the St. Pauli girl uh-huh. name came Yeah, I think from. so, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he is he is quite a writer. <laughs> and I do, I, I like a lot of what he writes. He's just personally a prick. Mm-hmm. But um, he, uh, uh, he... The reason they don't do it is because it would threaten their own economy. I mean, China is very dependent. See, the U.S. has nothing to offer these countries. I mean, if the U.S. stopped ship, shipping d- dollars to China, what the hell would we send them in exchange for all this junk they send us? Their own people I, back? 
<coughs> well, I guess we could sell them. They don't want the Chinese. <laughs> they, they don't want their own China. people back. <laughs> so, again, they want the Chinese less than they want you know uh. anything else. I mean, what does the U.S. manufacture that China could possibly want? How much? I think about it. What could we ship them? <laughs> now, what China wants dollars for is it can. Go, it used to be able to take dollars and go to Iran or Iraq or Saudi Arabia and buy oil, and it needs a huge amount of oil. Oh. So that's these dollars, and it was you know it reached a limit. See, the sit thing is, what we did with Saudi Arabia back in the seventies when we commoditized oil or commoditized the dollar on oil was we went to the Saudis and we said, look, you know, you've got goats eating your trash. That's your sanitation system. Okay, that's not good. What we'll do is this. You will sell us oil. We will give you dollars. But instead of actually giving you the dollars, we're just going to send you American companies that you'll contract to go and build cities for you. Mm-hmm. And so the Saudis agreed to us. So what we really did was traded them uh, American infrastructure development, and we built sanitation systems, and we built, we built entire cities in some cases, and we, built, uh, you know, we, we paved their roads and built up their infrastructure and showed them how to import Filipinos to do all the labor for them so they didn't have to you know, p- dirty their royal Saudi hands. And, uh, you know, and that's what we traded for oil, and it was just the dollar was the medium of exchange. But the advantage we got was all these other nations who wanted to trade with the Saudis had to pay in dollars. That was part of the deal. And if the Saudis were going to do it, the other OPEC nations went the same way. And basically, the world system, being dependent on oil, became dependent on the dollar. And so now we have these international institutions, these Bretton Woods institutions, and they you know, provide the dollar backing. So if you have a nation like Argentina... <laughs> And this is how their peso collapsed, who, who needs the dollar to stabilize the peso, but is having a trade problem with Brazil, which is, you know, driving down their economy and causing them to lose confidence. You know, the IMF stepped in several times and loaned them dollars, just physical dollars, that they could go and trade for pesos to maintain convertibility. And this, th- this you know, this is where we came in. We, we had the, the IMF using our dollars to help create stability in, in third world economies. We had an oil economy based on dollar exchanges. And with the euro pushing the dollar off the market, you know, we're losing our position and we're in a lot of danger. But still, China and, the, and Russia and the rest can't afford to just dump our money. They, they, they don't know what to do with it because China's already bartered all the infrastructure development it can handle. Yeah. It's got a huge undeveloped population. You know, one, but it handle it. One real world side effect. I've read a little about this Argentina problem, and, and maybe a lot of people have forgotten about this. But this was a real problem. They went through five presidents in less than a year because of the economic turmoil. And they, for a while there, for like a year or two, the country resorted to bartering. Now, this is just imagine this, folks. Here's what happened down there: their currency, you know, lost its value as, uh, every day, and the banks shut off access to everyone's money that was in the banks, and would only let them maybe have fifty or hundred dollars a day. And so each day, the, the people would wake up and they would look at their, the value of their currency, and it would be less. And then there would be this, this fixed amount of money that they had saved up for years stuck in these banks, and they couldn't get it out. And each day, there, what, what, it, what, it, what, what a dollar purchased, you know, uh, maybe it was worth a, uh, you know, 75 cents. Uh, the next day, it was worth 50 cents. The next well, day, see, it was worth 25. And they couldn't get their money out. We see the trouble, Jeff. Yeah. They could get pesos out. Mm-hmm. But the banks ran out of dollars. Yeah, the banks didn't have dollars enough dollars stockpiled to make a one-for-one conversion good on the peso. 
So they were borrowing from the IMF. And what happens is people realize they were borrowing all their dollars from the IMF. There was a trade issue with Brazil that started this, and there was a, a reason why they couldn't, one of their major trade partners, and it got disrupted, and they, they, they was very dependent on them for, the, for bringing in foreign currency and maintaining that cycle. Well, when that broke down, you know, they had to go borrow dollars and try to survive it, survive it. Well, people realized that, and all the wealthy Argentinians who knew what was happening started taking the dollars out of the banks and shipping them into foreign bank accounts because they realized the banking system was bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. has the advantage that we don't have to borrow dollars. We can print them. <laughs> but we can only print so many before the inflation taints our economy. And that's what the Iraq War is teaching us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's where we're headed with this. Um, and uh, so, I mean, th- that's where we're headed. Okay. And, and, you know, white working people have a lot of challenges. And, and really, our failure to, to organize as white working people, starting with our breakdown it, during the Second World War, our breakdown of racial consciousness, which occurred because the Jews persuaded us we were fighting against racial consciousness, that it was evil. That psychological break has led to us being unable to, to organize, to defend ourselves against the Jews' economic attack. And that's where the American National Socialist Workers' Party fits in. We are trying to organize white people and educate white people to fight off this attack through our magazine, through our websites, through the, through the radio programs where we've started producing. And, and, you know, Jeff, I'm very thankful that VNN is helping, uh, you know, get some of this message out. And uh, I'm thankful for the other white activists that are trying to get this message out because it's something that white activism has been lacking, which is a real coherent working class platform to struggle for. You know, this is, uh, I've I've put out on the forum, uh, this is the last chance to call uh, Bill White. You know, you've got a lot of antagonists. Uh, You you have some protagonists, too, on the forum. Uh, Now, this this is the chance to come out of anonymity, at least partially, and uh, and talk to Bill. Tell him he's full of baloney, or tell or tell him tell him you like what he has to say. Uh, this this is your chance. This is a VNN Free Talk Live. It's a Skype ID, and there's also a phone number. But just send me a chat message before you call, and uh, and and so on. Now, Bill and, and Jeff, I'll tell you this. I'll hang out. I can hang out here about another ten minutes. Yes. If anybody wants to call in, uh, we'd originally set an hour, but I'll give I can give a little bit more time here. Um, Are there any I'll topics you want to bring up, Bill? Well, I'll be I'll yeah. be happy to. Uh, one I would love to bring up is that the people who antagonize very rarely want to go head to head with me in a discussion. They love to do it in a vacuum, mm-hmm. but there are very few things that they will want to bring up to my face because they know it's all a bunch of BS. I mean, I can remember when the line used to be, "Well, look at the terrible things Bill White said about Kevin Strom." <laughs> and of course, what happens? He's in prison for child porn. You know, we have somebody like uh, some of these guys who argue, well, you know, if you're touching a 13-year-old girl, that's not pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Well, who's going to come out and try to make that argument in a place where somebody can just laugh at them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the kind of irrationality. I mean, I've seen it. When, we, when I was with the NSM, <coughs> the ADL used to put out press releases saying, you know, having Bill White as their spokesman is really holding them back. Does the ADL care <laughs> about the NSM being held back? Do you think they'd promote that? Well, they tell somebody that if that's what was happening. You know, that's that's what we get with these with these. Uh, in my opinion, these conservatives, Bill, they're they're even even if they've come this far along the road, they're so interested in this idea of being respectable, and uh, and you know, you've got to understand that 
you know we're uh, you know of course we we want we want to be uh, truthful and honest in our dealings with people and so forth but you know we are we are despised uh, by the by the nation at large uh, they don't they don't understand why they don't understand the, the I, issues but we I, we are we are hated we are despised i, I, I disagree okay. I, I don't feel despised when we went to lansing and I spoke at Lansing, and I was there working the press and telling them what we believe. People were coming up to us at dinner and shaking our hands. We couldn't stop them. Yeah, when they, right? when they finally hear us when through they hear our own we voice. Say. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not worried. See, I, I, I have nothing to do with conservatives. I, you know, I, I've gone through that. I started off on the left. I went through a, a constitutionalist kind of libertarian phase. Mm-hmm. And then I came back, and I, and it, you know... It, there's so much. All of conventional politics is garbage. It's all stage-managed garbage. And, you know, I've really moved through a lot of these movements, and I've realized that there's no substance to any of them. You know, there, there's national socialism. There are various other white doctrines that are sort of lesser. And then there's the Jewish political spectrum. And there is no dissent. The left, the Jewish left, the Jewish right, the Jewish libertarians are all the same thing. You, would, you would include the Rockwellites in this, right? <coughs> oh, they're so Jewish. I, mm-hmm. Let me tell you this. When I work, first of all, we have a whole. We, we've done a couple spreads. We did a Kites of the Constitution spread and a Libertarian spread. When I work for Kites of the Constitution, Kites of the Constitution, because the Constitutionalist movement is riddled with these oh, Jews. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's um, that's that uh, Catholic that uh, that that uh, that ran for president. Yeah, Constitution Party. You're saying right? Const- uh, Howard Phillips. Uh, yeah. we have a uh, folk like Archie Lowe. Uh, you know, in the militia movement, oh, we yeah. have uh, folks like um, they're the big bunch of uh, phonies, aren't they? W- the, the Jews for yeah. the preservation of firearms ownership with the lie <laughs> that Hitler took guns. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, we, yeah. we can go uh, payment yeah. multahado of the you know the anti-tax movement. There's a whole spectrum. Of them. But okay. getting into libertarians and Rockwellites, I've dealt with them. I've interviewed them. When I used to work for Pravda, and after it was nationalized, I was no in Washington. You work for Carson. Pravda, huh? Jeff, Jeff, you 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 must have missed everything that happened more about three years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I just, I really, uh, yeah, yeah, I came on the scene, uh, yeah, about two years ago. All right, so you, and you missed the whole, mm-hmm. uh, you missed a whole lot of history. Pravda, that's really something. Well, I, I used to be there, Washington. Cars I, mean, I, I used to, I used to read Soviet Life. You know that magazine? <laughs> I, I've had some copies of it. Yeah, yeah, it was in the library. I used to read that. This, I, this uh, is yeah. post post Soviet Pravda, but okay. I used to write for him, and I, I remember I wrote a, I did an interview with the uh, Center for Libertarian Studies and uh, Justin uh-huh. Raimondo and uh, oh yeah, the rest of them. Oh yeah, and he's uh, a sniper, was, right? Oh, he Justin Raimondo. Yeah. He's I mean, uh, oh, he, he's a homo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, here's he's also a Jew. Oh and, no, uh, he, you didn't know that he's no? a quarter Jew, oh, and boy. he's very identified because I wrote. Eric Garris, their webmaster, said to me the quote, "Antiwar.com is dripping with Jewishness," and of course, Antiwar.com is published by Burt Blumard and Murray Rothbard, mm. and it comes out of this Jew libertarian conspiracy. But as soon I wrote an article and I quoted him on this before I was particularly anti-Semitic. And they spent the next few months writing letters to my editor demanding that I be banned, you know, that they stop publishing me because I criticized them and, and questioned whether or not their Jewishness influenced their coverage of war issues. How dare you? And, and you know what? They were very happy to say that they were Jewish when they thought I was going to say something nice about it. When I was critical about it, they flipped out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we have a photo of Rockwell here in our October issue. 
on Islamofascism. We also have a little spread on the libertarians. And we have a list of the libertarians. I mean, the founders of the libertarian movement, you know, Murray Rothbard, a- Anne Rand, who's a, you know, mm-hmm. Murray, what was her yeah. name? Uh, oh, hell, I've got it right. Oh, wait, maybe it's in our November issue. I, I've, as but her philosophy of selfishness, yeah. I'm familiar well, with her philosophy of Elisa Rosenbaum, yeah. Ludwig yeah. von Mises, who destroyed the Austrian economy. I mean, do you know the story <laughs> on von Mises? No, I'd he like was to know. Austrian, he, there was a coup against him. He was so bad. You know, let me tell you about von Mises. This this guy they held up as their their you know as their uh, idol. He was the central bank. First of all, he was the Jewish official in charge of the German reparations payments after the First World War. Oh, good lord! He was made central banker of Austria. Okay, his he, he collapsed the Austrian economy, leading to the 1934 coup against Dolphus. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it was his economic policies led directly towards the overthrow of the Austrian government and the installation, eventually, of a national socialist government. He had to flee the country because the Austrians, angry at his economic policy, <laughs> stormed the parliament, lynched the chancellor of Austria, and literally chased him to the airport where he had to jump a plane and flee to the U.S. where he opened up his, uh, his little economic school. God, I mean, the guy was a disaster. Here. Uh, Ludwig von Mises was a one-man disaster as an as an economist. Uh, every time he put the time that he was given to put his stuff into practice, it destroyed an entire nation. You know, but here are these stupid Jews from this circle of New York Jews around Rothbard and Rand. You know, pretending that libertarianism is some you know great great ideology. I mean, it's it's sick, mm-hmm. and, and we're all so ignorant of this. You know, I, I remember seeing at the press club in this guy from the Reagan ranch was there talking and we start debating the economy he goes Ludwig von Mises is. I said you know what Ludwig von Mises was a dumb Jew I am tired of hearing his name and the guy just sat there and shrugged. he goes I've never heard anybody describe him that way well how else do you describe somebody like that just, you know, it, it's, it, conservatism has nothing to offer nothing at all it doesn't have anything to offer in terms of social mores it's all reactionary Christianity half understood Judaized Christianity not a you know, positive Christianity or Christian identity. You know, it has nothing to offer morally to the nation, socially, economically. It's a bankrupt movement. The libertarians are Judaized to the core. And, of course, the multicultural left is just a poison of the left. National socialism is the only ideology that stands up for white working people. Okay. Well, again, uh, let's, let's, everyone has had a chance now to get a piece of Bill White, and here it is, total silence. On the forum, it's endless. So I, I'm a little disappointed. And not, not, not just someone to call up and be, uh, you know, to be rude, but to, to have a legitimate uh, point to, take, to, to, to bring to, to the table. And, and, and nothing, nothing it, at it's all. It's all rumors. Rumors, yeah. backstabbing, and BS, because they know... They know what I've done when I've been involved in white projects in the past. They saw what was happening in the NSM. I've been under, I'll tell you, the SPLC has had me on a target list for a long time. The ADL has me on a target list. Canada's been trying to have me arrested for years. I mean, going back four or five years, they've been trying to have me arrested for undermining their government. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys, the people who are opposed to the white race hate me. They, they cut me. If I announce I'm going to be on a TV show, they will call the TV show and cut my interview. I don't even announce where I'm going to be in the media beforehand. Were you going getting... on some type of a, like Oprah show or something? 
<laughs> no, I, I refuse the talk shows. I get invitations to those. You think there was some black black daytime talk show, didn't they? Didn't they? They invited me. There was a, oh. that that um, that model girl. What's her name? Uh-huh. I don't know. She's some supermodel. Uh-huh. Tyra Banks. Okay. I've been invited onto that. Montel, Doctor Phil, Jerry. Sp- they all invite me. I. I t- I'm not sure if this is productive, is it? Do you think it's productive to go on talk shows? shows? No, I don't go on talk shows. I go on news shows. Okay. But I get invited on serious news shows, and they spike me. Yeah. You know, I I can remember, see, well, we we don't really have time to go into it, but I've been on all the big, you know, Jeff Beck and Alan Combs and all of them have interviewed me, Dave Ross, uh, the fellow out in Washington, and, you know, radio, I, I usually, I'm able to get on a little better than TV. If they hear I'm coming near TV, they spike me. They don't want this heard, what I'm saying. They don't want intelligent white activists out there advocating for white working people. They want these mouth-breathing criminal thugs that they can then go and demonize as, a, as hate mob. Well, I agree with you entirely. And I, I, that's, that's entirely accurate. <coughs> Jeff, I'm going to have to, okay. to to leave here. I do have a, a look, wife and a family who are I'm I, sure about to lynch me. I, I agree. Now let's let's report your let's get, <laughs> give out the contact information one last yes. time. Thank you. It's uh, the American National Socialist Workers Party, or ANSWP. Uh, you can write to us. We will send you free copies of our magazine. And folks, if you want to know where I know all this, I've had a stack of magazines here. I've been flipping through them to make sure I get my facts right. Uh, you can write to us at PO Box eight six zero one. Roanoke, Virginia, 24014. Again, that's P.O. Box 8601. Roanoke, Virginia, 24014. You can catch us on the web at overthrow.com, at answp.com. Or you can email me. I'll just give out my email. I didn't give it out before. Uh, NSM Roanoke. That's N-S-M-R-O-A-N-O-K-E at yahoo.com. You know, I, I love talking to people. I love discussing issues with people. And, uh, of course, you can catch me on VNN Forum uh, rolling around in the mud with some of the detractors <laughs> as well from time to time. Well, thank you for coming on the program, Bill. And thank you, Jeff, for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Okay. Take uh, care and good night. Good night. Bye. Okay. Boy, I'm really, sur- I'm really disappointed, folks. We usually have several calls uh, during the uh, broadcast. At least uh, we had some chat messages here and there, but uh, utter, utter silence. Uh, from uh, from the um, uh, utter, pretty much utter silence here uh, from the uh, listeners tonight in the audience. Uh, let's see here. There were a few that came in. Uh, uh, okay, here's a few a few that popped in. I had a few pop in here. Um, I've never heard of this here. This is something you can listen to. Bill can listen to in the archive. I've never. This is from Machiavelli. I've never heard of this guy, but I like what he heard. What I heard tonight. Uh, I'm not a national socialism, a national socialist, uh, but I'll be checking out his podcast in the future. I don't think he has a podcast, but um, if you go to the um, Answip, A N S W P slash Radio, I think you can download his MP3s. Anyway. Um, uh, this guy, oh yeah, this guy contacts me occasionally. He says he's not a white nationalist, but enjoys listening to this radio show. Uh, I don't have to agree with everything you guys say, but it's intelligence discussion, which is why I listen. Well, thank you. Let's see, what else we got here? Um, oh, crap, there was someone who popped in. Uh, sorry about that, John. Uh, oh, I missed that one, too. This was a comment by, uh, maybe he can answer, maybe Bill can answer on the forum. 
Uh, Jeff, please ask Bill if he remembers a guy tearing up an Israeli frag in, uh, in front of the Israeli embassy and then shining his boots with it. <laughs> Back, <laughs> Excuse me, I'm not feeling too well. Back in 2000, 2001, 2002, it was me. Oh, it was you, Yankee Jim. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit down tonight, so I, I guess I missed those, and I apologize for that. Um, anyway, uh, if there's not any more calls or comments tonight, uh, I might end the show tonight. Uh, that would be fine with me. Uh, how about you guys? Uh, send me some chat messages right away and let me know if there's something you want to talk about. Oh, uh, John said no problem. Otherwise, uh, I think I'll probably um, uh, play uh, the Blues Without Niggers uh, broadcast for the rest of the night's broadcast. Uh, and I'm going to get back to my family, too. Okay, here we go, folks. I'll, I'll be watching the chat messages here for a few minutes, and I'll come back online if there's something. Uh, uh, but uh, otherwise, enjoy the music, and thanks for being on Free Talk Live tonight. Blues without niggers, only on BNN Broadcasting. Vanguard Radio. No Jews. Just right. <laughs> 